everyone, and welcome back to the Statehouse Spotlights podcast, your go-to podcast for the latest education news happening across the country. I'm Tom Green. And I'm Ashley Mullins. As National Legislative Directors at Excelinet in Action, we lead the Ledge Affairs team and collaborate with leaders and policymakers nationwide to champion student-centered K-12 education policy. Each week on the podcast, our team tracks education bills and shares trends from the states. On today's thought-provoking episode, we'll touch on a topic that's heating up in the states. We're talking about public school versus private school accountability. From standardized testing to curriculum oversight, we'll explore the differing perspectives and delve into the implications for student outcomes. We're really excited to be joined by Excel and Ed in Action's Executive Director, Patricia Levesque, to chat with us as we navigate this highly debated topic. Welcome to the show, Patricia. We're really glad to have you on. Well, Tom and Ashley, thanks for having me. This is exciting. My first Excel and Ed in Action podcast. Wonderful. Well, before we dig into accountability, let's go ahead and run through this week's legislative highlights from the states. Tom? Yeah, last week we saw a lot of action in the states, especially from governors advocating for strong education policies. In Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey introduced her parental choice proposal called the Choose Act, which will provide families flexible education spending accounts to use towards private school tuition, instructional materials, and personalized education supports. If passed by the legislature, this program will initially serve low-income families, but eventually will allow universal eligibility by year three. She also called on legislators to limit social media for minors, and I know we talked about that in a previous episode. In Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds, her early literacy bill package will drop this week, and it will focus on training teachers in the science of reading. Also in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp's workforce bill that creates a list of value credentials passed the first chamber, the House of Representatives, nearly unanimously. The goal of this bill is to orient the state's workforce education programs to produce more of these industry credentials that are being demanded by Georgia businesses. Also in Idaho, Governor Brad Little's school facilities bill was introduced last week to help inject funds to update and modernize school facilities. Yet the proposal could potentially have an unintended negative impact on charter facility funding. So we're digging in and we'll report back later on more details. Also, New Mexico's legislative session will end this week. It wasn't long ago that Governor Lujan Grisham called on state lawmakers to advance strong early literacy policy. However, a major piece of legislation that would provide funding for school districts to transition their curricula to the science of reading has stalled. It would provide $12.5 million to help those districts with instructional material transition. Also in Michigan, we saw bills being introduced that provide early literacy coaches, require professional development in the science of reading for educators, individualized reading plans for struggling students, and language that would limit the use of the harmful instructional practice of 3 queuing. Last but not least, North Carolina's Opportunity Scholarship Program opened its application window on February 1st, and it was reported last week that the website crashed Due to the overwhelming interest from families, they received more than 32,000 applications in the first week. The state's Opportunity Scholarship Program provides vouchers to North Carolina families to send their kids to a school that best meets their unique learning needs. Last year, lawmakers made the program universally available, where before it was limited to lower-income families. Thanks, Tom. It's so good to see so much movement across the country on these important issues. And Patricia, every week, Tom and I go through what's moving across the states, and we're really excited to have you on. How do you think states are doing so far this session? Well, Ashley, I think states are taking a lot of really good steps forward. I think we've probably said that two or three years now, it's been the year of science of reading, right? States just continue to take 
great steps forward to make sure that the harmful practice of three cueing, which is teaching kids to guess words instead of sound them out, that we don't have curriculum or instructional materials or instruction in K-12 using three cueing, but we're seeing a lot more movement this year with states ensuring that education preparation programs don't teach our future teachers this flawed practice of trying to teach kids how to read. So I'm really excited about that forward movement. I think we have some states that are taking forward steps in math, and that's really important because, as we all know, students lost more ground in math than they did in reading, and it's going to take additional practice to move things forward. I think private school choice, uh, school choice in general, has continued to remain a focus for a lot of states. And I'm really excited this year to see all of the state action on youth mental health, right? And a lot of states are moving forward looking at how do we ensure social media or excessive smartphone use during school day that those things are limited or just stopped for young people under age 16. That's exciting. And then I really enjoy seeing what's going on in Indiana and North Carolina and Florida and some other states on taking forward steps on artificial intelligence, whether it's looking at how AI is going to impact education and really thoughtfully studying that issue or looking for ways to ensure that the benefits of strong artificial intelligence tools that are designed for education can be used to help teachers in the classroom. I'm excited about this session. So are we, Patricia. And you mentioned so many great topics. So a plug for our listeners, if this is your first time tuning in with us, Patricia mentioned the great movement on literacy legislation, on math policy, and also on social media and cell phones and the dangers and the harms to students. And Tom and I have done a couple of episodes on each of those. So go ahead and give those a listen when you have a chance. All right. I think it's time to jump into the hot topic of the day. So Tom, I'll turn it to you. Yeah. So, you know, in 2023, we saw a widely successful year for education choice programs. Last year alone, eight states joined Arizona and West Virginia in adopting universal or near universal parental choice programs, like education scholarship accounts, which we call ESAs. And other states leveled the playing field with fair funding for charter school students. You know, we heard also from a lot of critics of parental choice, specifically private choice critics, focus their opposition on public funds being allowed to flow to private schools through a parent's independent choice. And then you have questions that inevitably flow from that, which are, how are private schools being held accountable for those funds? Is it fair and equal to public schools that deal with state testing and additional regulations? Now, on the flip side, private education proponents say private schools are indeed held accountable just in different ways. So it's a debate that has continued to intensify, and it's especially been intense recently with so many states moving in a direction to provide more options for families. It's a nuanced issue when it comes to accountability with lots of misinformation and misunderstanding floating around in the public arena. So let's get into it. So Patricia, people ask, how can we support annual high-stakes testing for public school students and then norm-reference testing for private school students? Why shouldn't public funds come with public accountability, and how do we square these issues? 
Tom, thanks for the question. It is one that I have heard often, and I'm going to start with a quote from Darrell Bradford, my good friend who's president of 50 Can, who says, you regulate a monopoly differently than you regulate a market, right? They're different. So the regulation and accountability for them should be different. The way I like to describe it is imagine there's a continuum, right? And on one end of the continuum, you have the traditional public school system that is compulsory attendance, right? In most states, if you don't send your child to the public school system, there are serious repercussions for that. There are consequences for that, right? It's a system that is 100% public funded with federal, state, and local public funds. Families or students are assigned to their school district, assigned to their school. The state determines the standards, the local district or the state determines the curriculum. Really everything about the traditional public school system is required from the state. And because of that, because the state or the local school district is in control of all of that, and parents are required, students are required to go there, the state needs to have a heavier hand, right? Or maybe not even a heavier hand, but the state has a really deep interest in ensuring that there is reading and math learning going on in those schools because the state or the school district is telling you this is where you have to send your child. Now, on the other end of the continuum, you have let's say home education or private school education that is completely parental choice and private pay, right? It's the parent that's paying for their home education or their child going into the private school system. And on that end of the continuum, the state should have a very, very light touch because those are private decisions with private funds. Now enter private school choice which is completely parental placement decision, but there's the use of public funds. And so in this instance, what we recommend is a balance of accountability and autonomy with a heavy state interest in ensuring health, safety, general welfare, and fiscal soundness in the options that are available but a very light touch when it comes to the options that a parent can choose from. Because in private schools, there are no parents that are made to go, or no students that are made to go to a particular private school, right? It's 100% parental choice. And if you talk to parents who are making those choices, they choose different schools for a variety of different reasons. Some want faith-based education, some want you know, the type of learning environment or uh, mode or curriculum that a particular private school is using. Some want it for the safety aspects or the proximity to where they live or work, or there's just so many different reasons why a parent may choose a particular private school. But what we recommend is because you have this, what I will say, the middle point in the continuum where it's 100% parent choice, but there is public funding attached, you have to have that balance. And that's why we recommend from a testing perspective that private school choice students can take a norm referenced test chosen by the school off of a list approved by the state, or they could take the state test. 
And those should be the options that are available in a private school choice program. And we think that's a good balance between accountability and autonomy. Patricia, can you tease out a little bit more for us about norm reference assessments for private school choice and why we recommend this middle ground? Sure. I think when you're looking at a program, especially for policymakers that are in states that have maybe never done private school choice before, I think it's really important to go back to, is there a great model? Like if we were going to pattern our state program off of another state program, what is there that is out there that is proven to be a good model? And I would say we recommend this norm referenced test model with the option for the state assessment based upon the evidence from the best in class, largest, longest running statewide private school choice program in the country. And that's the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. It's been in existence for 23 years. It's probably the most researched single private school choice program in the country. Up until two or three years ago, it only served low-income students, students that met free and reduced price lunch criteria, and it has served more than a million students over the years. Now, that's the size and the scope and the the long tenure of the program, but I want to talk to you about the results of the program. There have been numerous pieces of research on the tax credit scholarship program that has shown that the tax credit scholarship students, the longer that a student was in the program, the more likely those students were to get bachelor's degrees. The Urban Institute did a research study where they matched 89,000 scholarship and public school students that were similar in characteristic and found that Students that were on the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship for at least four years were 45% more likely to earn a college degree. They found that students who were on the scholarship for four years were 99% more likely to attend college, and that students who were on the scholarship for at least four years were 38% more likely to have higher college attendance rates. And this is coming from a place where the students that were on the tax credit scholarship were triply disadvantaged. And what does that mean? That means that they had lower family incomes than the traditional low income student in the public school system. They were enrolling from lower performing public schools and they had poorer initial test performance than their peers before they started the program. And yet they had all of these dramatic outcomes when they were in the tax credit scholarship program. In addition, the tax credit scholarship program, which requires norm referenced assessments of the scholarship students and has all of those test scores aggregated up and is researched annually by an institution of higher ed that found that there were 13 years in a row where these same low income scholarship students were doing equal to or better than their low income peers in the public school system on reading or math. And then most recently, David Figlio and other researchers found over a 15-year period, so they studied this over 15 years and found that the public schools, right, the traditional public schools where there were more private school options that served those tax credit scholarship students near those public schools, 
those students that remained in the traditional public school system had higher outcomes. So that's why we recommend to states use this particular model. It is this norm reference test or option to take the state test that that is the model of, like I said, the best in class program in the country, 23 year Florida tax credit scholarship program, largest, longest running program that has had incredible outcomes. That's why we recommend that model. Wow, that's amazing. And I think the bottom line is choice works. I mean, it's not only the right thing to do to empower a parent to decide the best school for their child, but from everything that you laid out, the results are there, that it works. And, you know, from our perspective, Patricia, how would you describe where charter schools fit into this continuum? I think you laid out the private school accountability case very clearly. Where do charters fit in? They're public schools. Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Charter schools are in this very unique space where they are 100% parental choice, right? Every parent or every student is in a charter school because their parent selected or tried to get them into that school. No one is assigned to a charter school, yet they're under the same traditional public school accountability system or model. And until federal law changes or courts determine that charters are private entities, it's going to remain this way. I believe that charters should have more flexibility because they are 100% parental choice educational systems, and that the state should be very, very cautious to close a charter school when 100% of the parents are choosing that school. Because again, those parents know and see something in that school that maybe the data isn't telling the state. And so when you have a school that is 100% parental choice, the state should have a lighter hand on things like school closures. That's the balance that I think we're going to have to recommend for charter schools while they're in this very unique space. That's an interesting point that you bring up, Patricia, since they are 100% choice schools while still being bound to our traditional public school accountability systems. Hopefully we'll be able to give them some flexibility in the future. I want to switch gears and talk about your home state of Florida, where some policymakers are trying to take a step back and weaken accountability for public schools. Since the Sunshine State passed universal education savings accounts, the Florida Senate is attempting to roll back some key pieces of accountability and transparency that they have on public schools under the guise of creating a quote-unquote level playing field with private schools. What is going on there and what's the prognosis? Thanks, Ashley. Yes, the Florida Senate has what I would describe as an anti-accountability, anti-school choice piece of legislation, and they are doing it under the guise of we need to have a level playing field, right? Public schools should be treated the way private schools are since we have universal ESAs. Well, my first point is there is no level playing field. (laughs) What do I mean by that? That is public schools have benefits incumbent in them that private schools will never have, like sovereign immunity, taxing authority, power of eminent domain, the full funding not only of their operating systems, but of capital outlay needs. There are so many advantages that school districts, traditional public school districts have that there never really is a level playing field. But aside from that, We need to remember, right, about the continuum. In the continuum, when you have a system 
that has compulsory attendance requirements and everything from assignment to students to curriculum to standards is selected by the state, by the government or the local school district, there has to be a different level of accountability or regulation from the state to ensure that learning is going on. And that is what the Florida Senate is not paying attention to right now. As far as the prognosis, I think the Florida House has played a really strong role in staying strong on public school accountability, on public school student accountability for high school exit exams and high school graduation. And and we think that the Florida House will remain strong in that position. One of the other things, the fallacies out there, when a state policymaker says, well, because we have universal private school choice or universal ESAs, that's why we can now remove all of this stuff on the traditional public school system. And I would say this, just because you have universal ESAs or universal private school choice in law doesn't mean that parents really have full choice yet. And so what I mean by that is there are more than 350,000 students that applied to have a family empowerment scholarship in the state of Florida. There were about 100,000 that were awarded a scholarship and then didn't take advantage of that, didn't exercise the scholarship. And for many of those families, it's because there wasn't a private school available near them or to them or that could serve their child. So be really cautious policymakers from thinking that just because you pass a universal private school choice piece of legislation that, you know, overnight, somehow all families are going to have choice right away. It is going to take time for parents to be aware of their choices, for there to be sufficient supply for your current system to be able to engage and participate on it. And so it will take some time for those opportunities really to spread to all the families who want to participate. Yeah, we've said it before. Florida really sets the tone for the nation in many ways on education, and we've seen some of this rhetoric kind of pop up in other states. So I think it bears repeating that there is no level playing field. As you said, Patricia, traditional public schools have so many built-in advantages. And, you know, I think as we see this conversation play out across the country, it's definitely a complex issue. And I think each sector has to be treated differently based on their unique challenges and opportunities. So do you have any last thoughts and words of wisdom for our education advocates? I would just say, if you believe that children are unique, right, they have individual needs and that there's no single school or single system that can meet every single child's needs, then as a policymaker, you have the responsibility, right, to provide multiple opportunities for families to choose, whether it's public schools, public charter schools, private school choice, home ed. And in all of these options, remember there's a continuum from compulsory monopolies to parental choice, parental pay. And in the middle is that parental choice, private school choice with public funds. So what's really important for policymakers to do is to get the balance right. Remember that there is a balance between accountability and autonomy. Thank you so much, Patricia, for sharing your insights with us today on the public versus private school accountability debate. And thank you listeners for tuning in to State House Spotlights today. We invite you to reflect on the arguments presented in the debate today and think about how best to balance accountability with autonomy. 
We hope this episode has sparked some meaningful dialogue for you and encouraged further exploration of this issue. Please keep the conversation going and share your opinions with us on social media. You can engage with our team at Excel and Ed in Action on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and X. Please give our podcast a review and subscribe so you are always the first to know about new episodes. Thank you for joining us again today. Until next time, take care. Take care.